I'll see you again next week. The Overseas Community Affairs Council is encouraging overseas journalists to report on the contributions Taiwanese have made to the world so that the world can see Taiwan. The OCAC is launching the Chinese Language Journalism Award for Overseas Media. Journalists can compete for two awards, the Print and Digital Report Award and the Broadcast Report Award. Entries that showcase in-depth professional reporting have the chance to win $2,500 U.S. dollars. The deadline is November 30th. Go to www.ocac.gov.tw for details. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Amanda Harvey is from Australia, but she has been in Taiwan for 17 years. She is the founder of You and Me Taiwan, which is a platform for connecting groups of people, companies, and individuals within Taiwan to help them with international communications, team building, creative thinking, etc., etc., Amanda is also a communications coach and a counselor in mindset training. Last week, she was talking about her life before Taiwan. Today, we're going to begin with more in-depth understanding of mindset training. Yeah, so besides you and me, Taiwan, you've got this part, uh, it's mindset training. That, of course, also involves communicating. Absolutely. But mindset makes me think of like, you know, just what they're thinking in their mind. Yes. And you're helping them kind of organize their thoughts or something. <laughs> well, mindset, basically the way that I would define mindset is the um, set patterns and habits of belief and thought that people have about themselves and about the world in general. So, you know, the things that people think that they are or aren't good at, the things that people believe are possible for themselves um, or that are possible in general, I think all is a really important part of mindset. And it's also about attitude. So, you know, whether someone generally has a more positive kind of optimistic attitude or tends to see the negative side of things, but specifically, it's what people believe to be true. I'm probably going to be jumping around a lot because I've got That's all these fine. questions, you know, or questions <laughs> in my mind. I can try um, some jumping too. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe because I've never really taken like self-improvement kind of classes. Right. I, I, I guess I couldn't really imagine what that is like. I mean, in the right. actual workshop itself. Right. When you do them on Zoom, how many students to to one teacher? It, that, it varies. It varies. Um, it definitely varies. I've what, tried, you just said something about 50. Uh, that is actually what I've done more in person. Right, with okay. a group of 50. Now with Zoom, you can't do On, 50, right? Well, you technically can, but so yeah. far I haven't. This yeah. is actually stuff that I'm really just kind of playing with at the moment, seeing yeah. what kind of configurations work, yeah. um, whether small groups are better, whether it does work for bigger groups. But I do think that what I'm actually doing with my mindset training, the focus that I have at the moment is actually could work with really any number of people because mm. it's actually for people to work individually with me guiding them. 
Mm-hmm. So giving them a set of questions to go through and getting them to actually think about their answers and then to think about ways in which this is helping them or not helping them mm-hmm. and then the parts that are not helping them, how they can actually start to make those particular areas of their thinking or their mindset, how to gradually begin to change those because it is definitely a gradual process. It's not that somebody's going to go from thinking I'm a failure to thinking, you know, the world is my oyster overnight. That's a really big jump. Um, But for someone that feels that things are not going the way that they want them to in some particular area, for them at least to then go through some steps of at least believing that it could be possible for them to be more optimistic and for things to go a little bit more the way that they would like them to go. Mm. So just gradually helping them to retrain their thinking um, to be more optimistic. So these clients, they don't just take one workshop with you. I mean, it's a continuous kind of thing. Yes. Well, I've actually, I did for a few years, um, a few years ago, I had an online life coaching business, Mm. which was working um, one by one with people. And I really loved doing that. Mm. And the people that I worked with really loved the work that we did together. And that was something that was a really nice part of my career at that stage. What I found at that time was that my kids were younger and doing that. And then also I was getting more demand for doing things in person, not only in Taiwan, but also around Asia. So I felt that it was a little bit hard to try and juggle everything. So mm-hmm. at that point, I shut down my life coaching site. Oh, I see. Um, but now this year, especially because of the pandemic and not having as much travel available or not doing as much in-person um, face-to-face work as what I was doing, say, a year ago, I actually decided to start a new um, website and a new online um, training business. Uh, and life I decided, coaching, you mean? Well, to actually not do – life coaching is very broad, and I decided okay. to make it a little bit more specific this time and to actually focus on the thing that I am most interested in and I think is most important is kind of at the basis of really, I think, everything, which is people's mindset oh, okay. um, and people's beliefs about things yeah. and to work with them specifically on that. So not not necessarily helping them to figure out what is the best career for them, but helping them to get to the place where they actually can um, use their own thought processes in a more productive way. Can you talk about one particular example, maybe like, yes. um, can I say a success case? A su- yes, a yeah, success case. In Taiwan. Case. In Taiwan, talking about um, mindset training or talking about... Anything. Okay. Um, well, basically working with a group of teachers who um, are actually teaching English and for them to get to the point where they were much more confident in their teaching abilities, getting better results from their students, um, even classroom discipline, they were able to handle that better after I did this training program with them. You're talking about Taiwanese teachers teaching English? Yes. yes. And they're like what, uh, elementary school teachers or? Yes. They are. Elementary school. Wow. Okay. So that was one particular example. And education is actually something that I really am quite passionate about about as well, because I think that 
teaching kids. And I think, you know, it just all kind of ties in together. As you mentioned, Taiwan has the goal of becoming um, a bilingual country. Yes. And I think that, you know, giving people, especially kids, the opportunity to actually use their English more and mm. to create, you know, more realistic situations for them and just making it practical, making it something that they can actually connect with. What's it been like teaching Taiwanese people and what kind of clients are you getting mostly? That are coming to you and, you know, opening up workshops with you and well, I've done this a, benefit from you. I've worked with a variety of people in really, a, in really a lot of different types of areas, wow. um, ranging from technology to healthcare. And they um, come to you. They know about you. They come to you. I, I mean, you didn't have to I approach also, them. No, I do also okay. sometimes connect with people to introduce my company because I think that my company is not necessarily all that well known yet. Uh -huh. And so it's no point having a really fantastic service that I can offer if nobody knows that it exists. So I think it's important for me to also connect with people, meet people, let people know what I'm doing. Uh -huh. um, okay. But I think that as time goes by, and what I've found in the past is that when people get to know about you, and then they will tell other people oh, about yeah. it as well. So I think that it does take time. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. What's your impression of Taiwan? It's um, a lot of things, really, Shirley. Uh, I think, you know, the biggest thing is the people. Taiwanese mm. people are amazing. I mean, they're just friendly and they're warm and they're inclusive. And I find overall non-judgmental that they will accept people and not necessarily make, you know, have preconceptions about somebody based on where they're from. From the first moment that I arrived in Taiwan, and I didn't come to Taiwan with any long-term plan. I came here <laughs> to see my husband and I, having been in various different countries, we were like, let's try Taiwan. <laughs> and I arrived. And um, the first moment that I got out of the airport and, you know, other than noticing the intense humidity, yes. what I noticed was just a really warm and, and friendly feeling, family-oriented. I think that's another thing that I really like about Taiwan is that it's a very family-oriented yeah. place. How, how, uh, how, do you, how do you sense that? Family oriented. I just noticed that, you know, all ages of people interact really well with each other, that it's oh. not. And that's something I noticed just from my early days in Taiwan is that, you know, teenagers taking care of their parents or grandparents and grandparents taking care of little children. Oh. And so it is really like a warm family kind of feeling and very inclusive. Right. I like feel. living under the same roof with your in-laws kind yes. of thing, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Which... It doesn't know. always, it work doesn't always for work. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a, a Taiwanese mother-in-law, so I'm okay there. <laughs> I believe that can be challenging, like in any culture. Yes, yes, it's true. Oh. It's true. But yeah, the yeah. people definitely, I think, okay. you know, are one of the things. And just, just the feeling, the atmosphere, I have felt, you know, since I've been in Taiwan, that it's just been a really nice place to be. It's quite relaxed. People are not, you know, they're not that serious a lot of times about things. Like they, um, I think, you know, just the relaxed style as well. I came before Taiwan, I was in Seoul in South Korea. Uh -huh. And that's very, very fast paced. And, mm. you know, people are very serious overall. And um, just even the style of clothing. I mean, I like quite a relaxed lifestyle. And in Seoul, people are dressed up and made up, you know, to the, the max. Uh -huh. you I've know, not you been need to Seoul yet. Yeah. You need to put on your three inch heels just to walk down to the convenience store, <laughs> <laughs> like an inch of makeup. Um, Apparently, and, Japan's like that too. Yeah, yeah. right. I think, yeah, Korea. 
Korea, I noticed, especially there, it's very, very um, uh. appearance conscious. And, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it can be really nice and stylish. And But I think for me, Taiwan is a little bit more relaxed. And I feel that I don't have to be so um, necessarily so formal all the time. I can just be more myself. Oh, that and I feel is so neat. Maybe some kind of comparison to Australia as well. Uh, yeah. I feel that, that Taiwan and Australia have some things in common, just being fairly relaxed and uh, the people being quite friendly and helpful. What about the food and everything? Is that all? Of that's course, all I good? love the food. <laughs> <laughs> the food is great. <laughs> I've always loved Asian food. Even yeah. when I lived in Australia, I actually, prior to leaving Australia, I lived really close to Chinatown and I used to eat Chinese food like at least three times a week. Oh. <laughs> and it's funny, but that's one of the things when I was living in Portugal, I missed good Chinese food. Oh. <laughs> I really did. Yeah. They, at that time, I mean, that was 20 years ago, there was no good Chinese food. We found one Chinese restaurant in Portugal and it was terrible. It was like <laughs> nothing like what I'd had before. So, you yeah, tried to learn Chinese cooking? Um, I'm not a cook. My husband oh. is a great cook. Um, oh. and he can cook all different <laughs> kinds of styles. He does, really? basically, he does kind of a fusion of a lot of different things. Oh my goodness. Um, not a typical uh-huh. um, style of any particular one oh. nationality. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, I think we don't need to cook Chinese food because we can go out the door and eat fabulous I food know. everywhere here. That's the other thing, the convenience here yes. in Taiwan, right? Really convenient, yeah. yes. Yeah, having the population. I mean, the population of Taiwan is basically the same population as Australia, but we are spread <laughs> out so far. Yes. <laughs> you just got to go a really long way for anything in right. Australia. I mean, yeah. in the city is not as much, but right. still it's just here is really convenient. Yeah. And oh. the opening hours too. I mean, you can buy anything at any time in Taiwan. That's right. In Australia, when I was there, and it may be a little different now, but, you know, there were closing times. Like if you wanted to shop after six, there are 24-hour supermarkets and yeah. things like that. Okay. But a lot of shops will close at six o'clock oh, in really? the evening. So, oh, wow. Yeah. What advice do you have to Taiwanese people in terms of, you know, your specialty? Yes. Right? Or what have you seen mm-hmm. in Taiwanese people? Mm-hmm. And what what areas do you see probably needs improvement that mm-hmm. people Taiwanese people can do better? I think one thing really is to develop confidence. And that's easier said than done. But I think that a lot of Taiwanese people, even who have a lot of expertise in their particular fields, don't always have the confidence to communicate that. And I know that part of that is language skills. Um, that it's not necessarily that easy to come across as professional. Even if you have knowledge, it's like if you asked me to talk about my specialty in Chinese, it would be way, way harder for me to do that. I wouldn't probably do a very good job at all. But just to believe in their own abilities, to have the confidence even to just speak up and, and, you know, to really try and, and make yourself understood whether or not you think that you can express yourself perfectly or not. But I do think that that just daring to actually speak up and be heard. Um, I do think it's a cultural thing as well. And sometimes that can be a little bit of an obstacle in dealing in the international kind of arena, because in Taiwanese culture, it's not really a done thing to to kind of toot your own horn 
so to speak, uh-huh. to talk about how great you are at something. Whereas in Western culture, we do a little bit more of that. You know, uh-huh. we're not shy in in actually expressing. Oh, it's actually know, the shyness, we, right? Yes, shyness, that issue I think, there. definitely. Yeah. yeah, shyness yeah. can really be a question. So how can people find you? I mean, do you have a website? The best ways for people to contact me would be maybe to send me a request on LinkedIn. Amanda Harvey in Taiwan. I think there's a lot of Amanda Harveys in the world, oh. but I might be the only one in Taiwan. Thank you, Amanda. Shirley, thank you so much. Classic shorts, poems, and stories from Chinese literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Today we're going to look at some poetry from the great poets of the Tang Dynasty and sentiments they felt around this time of year. This poem is called Early Autumn in Sanxi by Li Bai. Year's end, the flowers now rest. The season of the fleeting fire star. On the frontier, the mighty frost is early, and autumn's colorful clouds have crossed the river. Dreams circle the city walls. In autumn, my heart flies homeward, my thoughts returning south, like the fun river. Every day, all day long. The great poet Li Bai also wrote about autumn air. The autumn air is clear. The autumn moon is bright. Leaves that have fallen gather and scatter. Jackdaws roost and start anew, yearning for each other. When shall we meet again? It is hard to love this night. Poet Xu Huan writes about early autumn. There's a harp in the midnight, playing clear, while the west wind rustles a green vine. There's a low cloud touching the jade white dew, and an early wild goose in the river of stars. Night in the tall trees clings to dawn. Light makes folds in the distant hills, and here on the Huai, by one falling leaf, I can feel a storm 
on Lake Dongting. Great poet Bai Juyi has two poems about autumn. He writes about sleeping on a night of autumn rain. It's cold this night in autumn's third month. Peacefully within, a lone old man. He lies down late, the lamp already gone out, and beautifully sleeps amid the sound of rain. The ash inside the vessel, still warm from the fire. Its fragrance increases the warmth of quilt and covers. When dawn comes, clear and cold, he does not rise. The red frosted leaves cover the steps. Listen today with a beautiful short poem by Bai Juyi called "Song of Sunset on the River." A strip of water spread in the setting sun. Half the river's emerald, half is red. I love the third night of the ninth month. The dew is like pearl. The moon. Like a bow. Those are some thoughts from the Tang Dynasty in China, written around this time of year. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Overseas Community Affairs Council is encouraging overseas journalists to report on the contributions Taiwanese have made to the world, so that the world can see Taiwan. The OCAC is launching the Chinese Language Journalism Award for Overseas Media. Journalists can compete for two awards: the Print and Digital Report Award and the Broadcast Report Award. Entries that showcase in-depth professional reporting have the chance to win two thousand five hundred U.S. dollars. The deadline is November thirtieth. Go to www.ocac.gov.tw for details. You're listening to News Playlist. We've queued up some of the most interesting reports for you, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Welcome to News Playlist. I'm Paula Chow, the program host. 
Taiwan made headlines in May of 2019 when it became the first country in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage. Since then, more than 4,000 same-sex couples have tied the knot. On October 30th, two couples made history for becoming the first same-sex participants in a group wedding sponsored by Taiwan's military. A motorcycle brigade kicks off the army's joint wedding, followed by the brides and the grooms. 188 couples are getting married, including two couples that are making history. One of those couples is Major Wang Yi and her wife, Meng Youmei. They carry pride flags during the ceremony. Meng thanks Wang for choosing her and loving her and pledges to support her fully. She says she's proud that her wife is a professional soldier. Wang thanks her parents, who were in the audience, saying that she knew it was harder for them to face public scrutiny than it was for the newlyweds. It's an emotional moment for this couple, but they aren't alone. Lieutenant Chen Yingxuan is also here with her bride, Li Li Chen. Chen says that Li has supported her along the way and that being a same-sex couple is similar to choosing a career in the military. Both paths are difficult. Taiwan's military congratulated the couple, saying their participation shows that the military is open-minded and progressive. Andrew Ryan, RTI News. To show their support for the nation's troops, Taiwanese children wave the national flag during military exercises in southern Taiwan. Children in Pingnong County gather in front of their school waving the national flag to show their support for the nation's troops. This is the first time they've gotten to see military tanks up close. He said it was good to see and the tanks are really big. The soldiers and tanks have made quite an impression on other children, too. Another child says she wants to show her support for the army. It's Combat Readiness Week, and Taiwan's troops are using real weapons to train for combat. Wanlong Elementary School school supervisor Ling Youming says the exercises are a good opportunity for the students to show support for the troops and for the school to educate children about national defense. As one clouded leopard armored vehicle after another passes by, a group of children in Yunling are also waving national flags to show their support for the army. Natalie So, RTI News. Local governments across Taiwan are doing all they can to help their tourism industries recover from the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. By and large, Taiwan's people have responded favorably to these efforts. But the price of one recently offered travel package led to many raised eyebrows. How much is too much? Would you consider 588 U.S. dollars per person for a three-day, two-night trip to be expensive? That's how much a recent travel package taking in famous sites across three Taiwan counties costs. Many have reacted with surprise to this hefty price tag, hefty at least for domestic travel in Taiwan. For that price, some say you could travel a full halfway across the island. On the first day, the trip takes you to one of only two roundhouses for trains in Asia. From there, travelers go to enjoy street food at Lugang's Old Street and tour the Taiwan Glass Gallery. For the night, you will stay at what's being touted as one of the world's most luxurious hotels. The second day brings you to the Lugang Longshan Temple and continues with a side trip to see the work of skilled wood and tin craftsmen. 
After that, travelers find themselves sipping genuine Taiwanese tea in the neighboring Nantou County. For dinner that night, travelers will enjoy the equivalent of a state banquet. On the third day, travelers visit the Zhongtai World Museum and then hop on over to Sunmoon Lake for afternoon tea on a yacht. Given all this, is 588 US dollars per person really too much to ask? Shirley Lin, RTI News. This is News Playlist, a weekly rundown of some of the most interesting news reports brought to you by RTI. Watch along on YouTube if you like, or close your eyes and enjoy these stories by way of sound. Artists in Yilan County are busy at work ahead of an annual outdoor installation art festival. A number of curious tourists have come to watch the artists putting final touches on their giant installations before the festival begins. With just some handheld fans, some scaffolding, and some white sheets, one of the artists participating in an upcoming outdoor installation art festival has created a masterpiece. The five-meter-high structure is built of solid materials, but aside from the scaffolding, each part dangles in the breeze, evoking ocean waves. It's not for nothing that this piece has been dubbed Island. Yilan County in northeastern Taiwan will host this year's edition of the annual display starting on November 22nd. Visitors are arriving early for a sneak peek and to watch artists completing their monumental works. There's a lot to take in. Among the other works taking shape on the festival grounds is a forest of 400 bamboo stalks painted white to resemble the trees in a snow-covered winter forest. There is also a piece that appears to be made of thin bamboo or vines draped over a wooden frame. The piece's creator says this work doesn't yet have a name, but it is inspired by whales and environmental education. John Van Trieste, RTI News. The first Human Rights Art in Living Festival is set to kick off in late November. The festival, organized by the National Human Rights Museum, aims to demonstrate the core value of human rights in modern times. The festival will be held at the Jingmei White Terror Memorial Park from late November to early December. The period was chosen to mark both International Children's Rights Day on November 20th and International Human Rights Day on December 10th. The poet Hong Hong recites a new poem accompanied by saxophone music. The poem is dedicated to the memory of the first group of teachers and students put to death in 1950 during the White Terror era. This poetry reading is a preview of the upcoming Human Rights Art and Living Festival. Director of the National Human Rights Museum Chen Junhong says that the festival aims to revisit this dark chapter of history and introduce it to those too young to remember. Chen says the museum wants to express its condolences to the victims while also recognizing that Taiwan is moving forward towards a brighter future. In addition to poetry, there will be dancing, music, drama, lectures, and children-friendly activities so that different age groups can have a better understanding of human rights. The government has decided to add a new portion to the test for a scooter license in an effort to make future scooter riders more aware of the dangers of the road. Starting next year, the government says, people looking to get a scooter license will have to watch at least three safety films featuring common dangers before they can move on to the written and practical parts of the exam. 
One of these safety videos was put online in April last year, where it received 800,000 views. Now, the Directorate General of Highways has created 32 more of these films for would-be scooter riders to watch. The goal is to improve safety on the roads by drawing awareness to dangers such as changing lanes without signaling or getting too close to large vehicles. John Van Trieste, RTI News. And that's all we have for this week's edition of News Playlist. For Radio Taiwan International, I'm Paula Chow. Bye-bye. RTI is conducting a survey. Visit our website to fill out the questionnaire or simply send us your answers to the following four questions. Question number one. What platform do you use to listen to RTI programs? You can write more than one, but list the most frequent one first. Question number two. Which RTI programs are your favorites? Write no more than three programs. Question number three. Out of a total of five stars, how many stars would you give RTI's English broadcasts overall? And question number four. What are your suggestions for RTI's English programs? Everybody who enters will have a chance to win a prize. Send your answers to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan, 11199. Or send it via email. Our email address is audience01 at rti.org.tw. That's audience and the numbers 0 and 1 at rti.org.tw. Be sure to leave your name, gender, age, and nationality. Each of the new project or new um, idea comes up, we need to follow up like this, this procedure. So we have to search any of like the um, reference about the country's development strategy or plan and we will know what kind of the needs of the country and what kind of needs of our counterparts. Hello and welcome to this week's On The Line brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. The Overseas Medical Mission Center of Changhua Christian Hospital was set up in 2008 to provide medical assistance to those in need outside Taiwan. The center has conducted more than 150 projects in 14 countries in the world. They provided medical service and capacity building in Nepal, India, Mongolia, and Thailand, health promotion and safe water project in Myanmar, Children Malnutrition Improvement Project in Vietnam. And to discuss this issue, we are joined today by Dr. Nina Kao Xiaoling. Now, doctors and health professionals from your hospital, Changhua Christian Hospital, have volunteered their time in more than 14 countries. Now, yeah. with Taiwan's new southbound policy, your hospital has been helping a lot of countries in Southeast Asia, including Thailand in particular, and then followed by Malaysia, Vietnam, and so on. Has your center adjusted the countries that you wish to assist? Yeah, I think actually, before the government started new southbound policy, we already had project in those countries, yeah, like Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, um, Myanmar, um, Nepal, whatever. And so the new southbound policy for us is not a new one. For us, it's not a new one. And, but uh, I think the new southbound policy for us, the benefit, we have more resources. The resources is from government. We use less resources to support more projects and make the project deeper and bold. 
this is for me. I think the new southbound policy for 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 me, um, because the new one we got the more resources, so we can do more projects. So for us, we will not change any of country. We already cooperated with it. So, but the the more resources can conduct more projects. The other one is in new southbound policy. One of um, very important um, objective is how to. Uh, bridge the Taiwan outstanding um, manufacturer, particularly in medical devices and manufacturers, to lose of new South Bank policy countries. So in hospitals like us, we because we run the new South Bank policy, so we can so we like a bridge. So we bring, we we can bring uh, more of the the companies, um, particularly in the uh, smart healthcare companies, so they can go to the Thailand or other countries to promote. Their outstanding product. So in before, in this part we didn't do a lot, but now because we run a new southbound policy, so we we'll put some of efforts in this part. So you work with um, all the health uh, manufacturing companies in Taiwan as well, so yes. to help them enter into the local market. Yes. Now, you yes. have provided medical service and capacity building in many countries in the world, to name a few in Nepal, India, Mongolia, and Thailand, and health promotion and safe water project in Myanmar, children yes. malnutrition improvement project in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Tell us, first of all, how you came up with the idea of each project. As you mentioned earlier, there has been uh, slightly about 150 projects uh, you know, have been conducted. Yeah, as I mentioned before, that we have like the the uh, mechanism as you, you said, we call SOP person. Yeah, so in the when we um, do the new project, we actually we will follow the uh, mechanism, the SOP. So um, we have to do the needs assessment, so the problem identification, and implementing the project, monitoring, and variation. So each of the new project or new um, idea comes up, we need to follow up like this procedure. So we have to um, to search any of like the um, reference about the country's development um, strategy or plan and we will know what kind of the needs of the countries and what kind of needs of our counterparts. And then we sometimes we need to go to the country directly to interview with our stakeholders and with our counterparts and talking with them and understanding what they need. We see the, the all of the environment. And finally, that we will discuss with them to identify the problem and the prioritize that the problem they, they would like to solve. It. So um, then we when when we um comes up loose of the their needs, then we get back we will think about what resources we have. Yeah, because maybe all of the resources we we have, we can do this a program. So sometimes we need to find out all of the resources. Like we need to uh, invite our experts, like the water or nutrition. We need we need to uh, invite our experts to join with us to conduct the project together. So um, I think that this is like our daily work, you know, to to do like the project management cycle. So um, for each of the uh, new project, we need to follow this. So let's make sure that our our project can be successful running. So medical assistance actually has to do with a lot of other sectors. For example, uh, if it's water uh, safety, then it also involves like water experts as well. 
Yeah, because medical um, service, not only medical service. Yeah, sometimes nutrition problem or tap water problem can uh, in fact lead the um, the health. So when we're thinking about the uh, medical um, cooperation program, not only think about the uh, medical service. So for me, I will think about maybe the food security, maybe nutrition program, maybe the education, maybe like the gender issues. So we will try to consider more comprehensively to design our project. So sometimes we don't have the an expert in our hospital, like the water um, experts, yeah, like the the agriculture expert. We don't have that expert in our in our hospital. So we need to invite the um, we need to just work together with other organizations, even the universities. So we um, try to mobilize all of these resources together to run the project. You're listening to Underline, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Nina Gao Xiaoling, CEO of Overseas Medical Mission Center of Zhanghua Christian Hospital. So do you face any problems trying to mobilize all these resources, for example, like uh, water experts or nutrition experts? Um, actually, for me, as I said, I'm very lucky because, for, for example, the water experts, we're working with Queensland University for a long time. And the um, environment um, department is one of our very good partners. So, uh, so the um, director of the department is our very, very good friend. So he he joined us our program since 2012, I think. Yeah, the first program we're working together is in Vietnam. Yeah, so here now, when we have any of the uh, water issues, environment issues, we, we will consult him. And if, if he is too busy, cannot join us, he will introduce his friend to join us. For example, um, we, in Myanmar, we have like the, um, the West Water Recycling Program. So he invited another expert to join us to, to deal with the um, peak form of the wastewater treatment. So I think that for us, we have many, many good partners to working together. I, I think honestly, I, I, I don't have been many of problems to invite them to work with us because we have very, very you know, mutual trust each other. To make first contact with your partner hospital in the country that you wish to help, how did you make that contact? Some of the contact that's through the uh, embassy, through our representative, because they know the local um, partner is maybe much better than us. So when the local hospitals, they have their request, maybe they will go to the embassy or they go to the representative to ask the, to, to write up their um, request. So the embassy or the representative will send their request to us. And some of them that were through our local NGOs. And sometimes um, during the international um, conference, we were made of some of the um, the um, participants. So when we um, discussion or we would join the same panel, then we would know each other. So I think that for our partner hospital, it was different kind of the uh, relationship. For me, I'm not very sure. So each one is our good good partner. Yeah. But like back to our previous my previous um, say that that's 
we would do many of like the interview or the um, dialogue or the assessments before we really to start our cooperation. Mm-hmm. Now, faced with COVID-19, Dr. Kao, you mentioned earlier that it's not possible this year, especially in the year 2020, to send medical experts uh, to the local partners to provide assistance on-site yeah. and in-person. Now, what have yeah. you done to deal with the problem? Yeah, this year is really difficult for us because we couldn't send any of the medical team to any of the countries. Yeah, the lockdown problem is it really you know bring us a very huge impact. And also the the countries cannot send any of medical staff to our hospital for training. You can imagine that last year we trained over eighty of medical staff from different countries, but this year zero. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have to transform, you know, the incorporation type. So, you know, from April, so I think that may, in April, I think it, I, for me, I think it is very difficult. Yeah, maybe the in, end of this year, we cannot, we cannot go out. So we start um, to thinking about what, what, what we can do. Yeah, in April. So in April, we we start to to organize a series of online seminar. Yeah, we hosting over ten sessions. Yeah, including different topics. Yeah, we share that the experience of COVID nineteen prevention in our hospital. We invite the speakers. Uh, to talking about what is the impact that will be will caused by the COVID nineteen, and we also invite experts to talking about the big data analysis to to do the um, predict of COVID nineteen trend, and also the um, local government um, health bureau director to share us how the local to run the COVID nineteen prevention because each of the um, local um, Government, they have different resources. Yeah, the central they have their central of resources. So when the central come in, their policy they go to the local. Maybe they cannot conduct it. So the local government they need to modify that. Mm-hmm. So we share, we ask them to share the experience. We also have one of special session for nurse because you know there 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 is not many of the the online um, conference to talking about the role and the importance of nurse. But actually, the nurses is very, very important during the COVID-19 period to take care of the patients. And we also have some special session to talking about the traditional medicine um, intervention in COVID-19 prevention. That is an interesting session. So in this session, we we invite that the um, Thai, Thailand, um, the Ministry of Public Health Department, they have Thai we call the Thai and traditional department to join us this session because they share what is the Thai traditional of the matter involved into the COVID-19 prevention. So in this session, we attract over 350 participants to join this session. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we try to, to, to use the online, uh, we use the webinar to share many of our experience. And in other parts for the training part, because they cannot come. So we start to organize different topics of the online training courses, including that long-term care, because the long-term care is also a big problem in Thailand and in, in, in other Asian countries. And long-term care project is 
is my another project. We are more focusing on Thailand long-term care policy. So we um, we hosting eight courses. Yeah. So we invite um, eight of the speakers. Yeah, this is uh, to cope with COVID nineteen. Online uh, training program has been uh, in place, and we've been joined uh, on the phone today by Dr. Nina Gao Xiaoling, the CEO of Overseas Medical Mission Center of Changhua Christian Hospital in Taiwan. And that's it for this week's on the line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wen. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw. Our 60-minute English program can be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6185 kHz. In South Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to PO Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan. You can also email us at rti at rti.org.tw.